This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. My name is John Dunn. Today is January the 12th. This is the Best Friends Podcast. And with January in 2023 underway, we thought we'd once again put on our prognostication caps and look into the future. What is the year ahead shaping up to be, or at least as best we can tell? Before we get into that, in eight months from now, the Best Friends National Conference will be wrapping up in Houston, Texas. But what will be presented at the conference is being determined as I say this right now. Uh, the team making those decisions, though, they can only select you as a speaker if they have your proposal. There is a link in the show notes on your podcast player, or you can go to bestfriends.org podcast. Click on the link for episode 139. That link will take you to a page that will explain the process, the timeline, the topic areas we're looking for, such as field services and animal control, dog-specific life-saving, cat-specific life-saving, shelter ops, rescue group ops, community engagement, fundraising, marketing comms, culture change, just to name a few. Now, whether you've spoken at 100 conferences or you've never spoken at a conference, definitely please check out the link in the show notes. You know, if you're in a big city, a little city, far away from a city, a rescue group, a shelter, all volunteer, part of a paid staff numbering in the triple digits or somewhere in between, you are eligible to be a speaker at the Best Friends National Conference. Working in animal welfare, not a requirement. We love to have experts from fields outside of our world, so to speak. So maybe that's you. The variances and experience and knowledge, that's a huge part of making the conference a success. So we want you. Please check out the show notes, check out that link, get your proposal prepped and submitted by February the 6th. It will be here before you know it. Okay, so as I said, for this week, Brent Tolner, the Senior Director of Lifesaving Programs here at Best Friends, he and I sat down, we drank some tea and checked out the tea leaves, we pulled out our crystal balls, and we did our very best to look at the year ahead. Okay, Brent, so maybe the most important place for us to start is with a disclaimer, because however smart and talented and handsome you and I are, mm -hmm. we are not fortune tellers. <laughs> we are not seers. <laughs> we don't hold any special powers that allow us to see into the future. We're just a couple of guys chatting about animal welfare. Some of what we'll talk about today, who knows, might happen. Some of it may not. Uh, but please just don't come up to either one of us in like December, play us clips from this and throw it in our faces and tell us how wrong we were. Absolutely on that, yes. So I have some bullet points here of things that I want to talk about, and the top of that list is No Kill 2025. For folks that are not aware, this was a goal announced by Best Friends at the 2016 Best Friends National Conference in Salt Lake City, and the No Kill 2025 goal is for every shelter in the country, every shelter, all of them, to be at or above the 90% save rate threshold to be considered no kill. At the high level, Brent, how are we doing to this point against that goal, and are we on track to meet it? So, you know, I think, it, you know, we're obviously three years away from the end of 2025 when all of this is supposed to be done. And, you know, we started off with several really good years, and we were trending very, very strongly, uh, probably even ahead of schedule. Uh, I don't think it's been any real secret that the last couple of years coming out of the pandemic have been really tough for shelters. And uh, we've seen a little bit of regression. I think we're probably, you know, we don't have the final numbers in for 2023, but I think we'll be about where we thought we would be uh, in 2023, five years ago when we started all of this, uh, six years ago when we started all of this. 
It's just not the way we've been. We thought we'd get there. We thought it'd be more of a gradual decline in shelter euthanasia. And what we saw was a huge dip uh, due to the pandemic. We've seen some increase coming out of that. But I think we're generally still on track. Again, we'll see as we get a little bit closer and a little more data in for the year. But I'm not panicked yet, which I think is a good place to be. I'm not sure I've ever seen you panicked, and I don't want to, so that's good. Uh, you know, but what about the kind of overall high-level picture for 2023? From your perspective, what are you, Brent Tolner, looking for? What are you expecting? What are you excited for? What are you worried about? So I think anytime you look into the future and you're like trying to guess what's going to happen, I think the best way to guess sort of what's going to happen is looking at the current trends. And current trends tend to stay trends unless something interrupts that. And so, you know, if we would have talked about this conversation a year ago, we would have been talking about things about how coming out of the pandemic, that intake was rising faster than adoptions. And that remained true throughout all of 2022. We would have been talking about how transports were declining, and that remained true through all of 2022. Shelters filling up with dogs and being, particularly dogs, and being full and beyond capacity, like that was something that was the trend all throughout 2022. And so... I think as we look, you know, in this first week of 2023, uh, looking ahead, like all of those trends are still there. And I think we're looking more at that unless there's some type of interruption or disruption to stop that trend. And I think that's a little bit where we are in animal welfare right now. Like, I feel like a lot of people are looking like, how do we disrupt that, both on a national level, if you're a group like Best Friends, or even in my local community, uh, if you're working for a local shelter or rescue group. Like, what is that disruption that stops that trend moving forward? Because if we don't disrupt it, it's going to remain the course on that. Well, to stop a trend, I suppose you have to know the cause of the trend. So what is that thing or things that we need to disrupt uh, in order to disrupt that trend? Another one of my bullet points was specific to spay and neuter. You know, we're not now far off from three years since the beginning of the pandemic lockdowns, if you can believe that. You know, across the country, there were stoppages in veterinary services, surgeries, there were restrictions on PPE. In some places, it was months, months before things were back uh, to, to where they were. And I, and I think it's fair to say there's still probably a lot of places that are still not back to where they were pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, all of this has been made more difficult with the shortage we have with vets. Births can be quite exponential. So where are we with this? Do you know? Do you think we're caught up nationally speaking in terms of our spaying and neutering? Have we yet even seen the full impact of that suspension in surgeries during the pandemic? So a lot to unpack with that question. Um, you know, I think the veterinary capacity issue is something that, that we're going to be talking about this for a while. Like even if we had the solution for having more veterinarians going into vet school, uh, more vet school capacity, like even if we had that solved today, we're still four or five years out from those vets being able to make a difference and impact in this. Well, we need to solve that problem uh, for us to help get caught up. I'd love for us to see the conversation kind of shift a little bit of like, how do we take the vets that we have and be more efficient with them? I'm still seeing a lot of shelters who have veterinarians doing work that it's not required of a veterinarian to do. Giving medications at the shelter is not something a veterinarian is required to do, but a lot of vets still do it. A lot of shelters have not surrounded their veterinarian with enough veterinary tech and veterinary assistant help, and so they're not as efficient as they could be. Or veterinarians who are managing the vet clinics at their shelters and therefore spending a substantial amount of time doing veterinary work 
are doing management work instead of veterinary work. And like the veterinary work is the one thing that they're equipped to do that no one else uh, at the shelter is able to do. And I think if we can start having the conversations of like, how do we maximize the efficiency of those vets that we have while we also work to fill the pipeline for more vets in the future, I think is something that we're going to really have to focus a lot on in the, the coming years. As for the other question of like, have we dug ourselves out of this hole? Uh, I think it's going to be a challenge ongoing. I really do. That said, I feel like cats are the ones that are generally most affected. We make resources for dogs available. It's usually the unowned uh, community cats that get left behind on it. And the numbers for cats look like they're doing fairly well right now. So it's kind of hard for me to wrap my arms around like those two things uh, at the same time of knowing the community cats aren't getting the support that they need and knowing that right now they don't seem to be the biggest problem. So interesting. You know, prepping for this, I was doing some reading about the economy to see what the the experts in that world were predicting for the year. And if we think we need a disclaimer, I think they certainly do. Uh, but things like the economy and inflation and interest rates, these are things that are so vastly out of our control. But of course, they do impact us. They impact our, our clients, our customers in the form of pet owners. And the experts in, in the field of economics don't really seem to be uh, sure about what's going to happen. It does seem like things around the economy are improving, but I do think that things are still going to be tough the next few weeks and maybe even months. Oh, it, it's totally going to be a challenge. But I do think, like, it's no secret that the economy was lightning hot coming out of the pandemic. Holiday sales tend to say that that's still true, that it's still running really hot. And so I do think that they're trying to do some things at the federal level, raising interest rates, those sort of things that will slow down the economy a little bit. That seems to be working somewhat, but still not where we need it to be. Hopefully that will help a little bit with some of the staffing issues, because I know everybody's still struggling a little bit with staff, particularly in the life-saving outcome side. And I think that's where we have the biggest opportunity for growth right now, because again, we're not going to necessarily solve the veterinarian issue overnight. Like That's going to be a, a work in progress. But being able to have more people on on staff that are helping save lives and, and creating positive outcomes through adoption or through transport or through working with your rescue partners, that's something we can control. And so I think as the economy slows down a little bit, some of those staffing positions will be a little bit easier for folks to those those spots. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of a, a good and bad thing about our industry, right? Which is that we have a lot of areas that we can be more efficient. And I and I, when I say collect, I, I mean, we, all of us, I mean, collectively, individually, best friends, all the big groups, down to the smallest groups, I mean, we can all do better. And I think we have to find ways to be more effective. And, and I think the fact that we have those openings, that's something that should actually give us hope. And we should realize that, hey, you know, we can't control all these other things but what is in your house? What is in our house that we can get in order? The idea of control that you just said is exactly what I think we should be focusing on because I think it's become problematic for us to focus on these things that we don't control. We don't control the economy. We don't control the number of vets that are out there. What we can control is what we do in-house and is how we market the animals that we have. It's how the customer service that we provide when people come in. Uh, is the hours that we're open so we can be open during times when people aren't at work uh, and aren't at their jobs and convince them to come out to our shelters to, to come adopt, you know, especially as more people are working from home. Uh, they may be less inclined to leave their house uh, ever. 
So, you know, I think we have some of those things that we can control and it can be really disheartening if we focus on all the things that we can't. And it's like we're, we didn't become victims. And I think we have more control over some of those things in our shelters and in our communities than we give ourselves credit for. And so I feel like that is a, an area where people could benefit a lot by just focusing on those areas where they can control so that you feel empowered uh, to make a difference for it. Another one of my bullet points uh, about money, budgets, fundraising, feels like yesterday that Ed Jamison was on the podcast when he was still at uh, Dallas Animal Services. That was one of the very earliest episodes in the earliest days of the pandemic. You know, we were talking about reforecasting and concerns over budgets during that time. Just asking this in a general way, I realize no two communities are going to be the same, but are you getting the sense that municipal budgets are holding steady? Are things okay there? You know, and with fundraising, are people still donating? Just curious what you're hearing out there in terms of money. You know, the word that I'm hearing, and I don't have numbers to support this, but with the economy running high, tax revenue is really good. You know, I was uh, talking with a shelter they're building a new shelter facility and is based off of a sales tax increase. And they actually ended up with $8 million more coming in to build the shelter than what they had forecasted because there was so much more sales going on uh, in their community. And so I think overall city budgets, municipal budgets are going really, really well because the hot economy is helping drive that. I think that fundraising is going pretty well. You know, it's, People have money, like inflation is certainly a thing and it's hurting a lot of folks, but also everybody has a job right now. Uh, we're at almost peak employment for the entire country and people are tending to give it. So I feel like money isn't necessarily the issue that we're dealing with. It's more of how do we get people to adopt uh, at our shelters and how do we get the staffing we need to support the animals that are there and the, the adopters that come in? Because uh, right now that seems to be the bigger issue. Well, you mentioned adoption, so let's go there. You penned an editorial. Uh, it's been a few weeks now. It was before Christmas. It was up on the Best Friends Network website. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, where you looked at intake and outcome data. And please correct me, Brent, if I don't state this right. Uh, but intake is up for everyone which really should be no surprise to anyone out there, but adoptions are also up, but they're not up enough to match that increase in intake. In that editorial, you also looked at the rates of intake based on the type of facility. So municipal shelters and private shelters that perform intake services, those with and those without contracts, and there was a big disparity. Municipal shelters seeing a much bigger increase in adoptions you know, knowing that adoptions were a struggle, we held Best Friends, uh, through the Best Friends Network Partner Program, we held four national adoption weekend events last year, more than 35,000 adoptions over those events. I mean, absolutely incredible. So people are adopting, but we need more. Are we able to take like historical data we have at this point, put it up against other factors to see if we can make any predictions around pet acquisition trends? You know, can we predict with any certainty to what pet acquisition and adoptions are going to look like this year? Anytime you look at it, and again, we'll come back to the very first thing that we talked about. Like if you're forecasting into the future, looking at what your current trend line is, is where you should start. And I think we're looking at this continuing of the increase in intake with the increase in adoptions not keeping up going into the new year unless we disrupt it. And I think that's where we have the power within our own organizations to be the disruptors for it. I think the disparity that you mentioned on 
the municipals versus the privates. To me, that's really interesting in that I feel like those places that have less ability to manage their intake have to adapt more quickly. And, you know, therefore they're ramping up the number of staff that they have that are doing adoptions. They're ramping up some of their marketing. They're keeping their hours longer. You know, I've seen several uh, organizations that have even cut back the number of hours that they're open because they don't have the staffing. But then the staff's caring for the animals because there's not as many opportunities for them to get out alive through adoption. And so I feel like that disparity between the municipals and the privates has been really interesting to me just as we sort of understand that. Uh, It also tells me that there is a demand for adoptions. If the municipals are able to drive it, then that, that demand is there. I'm not saying it's easy. And I think that that's Going to be one of the challenges that like are still continuing to push through for all of that. But yeah, I would love for us to better understand that dynamic. And I think there's some some folks doing some research on it that hopefully will be coming out uh, just to better understand why some of that that changes. I'm really fascinated by pet acquisition rates. I always have been. You know, I think over the last few decades, really, animal welfare has done a very good job of communicating to the public the issue of pets and shelters. It's a community problem, needs a community solution, getting that life-saving message out there, you know, the adopt-don't-shop type message. And if we were going to crudely break it down, I think there's sort of three groups of of pet acquirers, right? We've got one group, they're always going to adopt. doesn't matter whatever. I mean, they're just never going to go to a breeder. Life-saving is important to them. And then on the other side of that spectrum, there's a group of people who probably will never adopt from a shelter. You know, whether that's they think shelter pets are broken or they can't find what they want. It makes them too sad, whatever it is. We're just never going to reach them. So it's that group in the middle that can go either way. And listen, purely anecdotal, and I mean this in terms of the entire movement, not just Best Friends or, or any specific organization, but I personally feel like we hear so much less of that adopt, don't shop message than maybe we once did. Do you think we're doing enough these days to promote adoption to the people who are going to get a pet this year? Well, I mean, you're talking to a guy who had a 20-year career in advertising before I got into animal welfare. So no, we're never doing enough to promote adoption because there's always more that can be done. And I would love to see, especially like municipalities who often don't have marketing budgets given to them, be allowed to have marketing budgets to be able to do advertising uh, for some of their pets and for their shelters themselves. But all of that said, like the biggest concern to me when I look at some of the acquisition information has been sort of the trend among kind of that Gen Y, some of the younger generation, that they're trending toward purchasing versus adoption, which is so counter to what we think about with that generation. That generation is usually seen as more socially conscious, more into social issues. And so they they would tend to be the ones you would think would be more aware of what's going on in the shelter system. But there's something else that's driving them to be more inclined toward acquiring through purchasing. And I don't know whether it's that messaging that you were talking about, like there's not as much messaging out there, the puppies aren't products uh, type of messaging. There may be some Instagram type influence of purebreds that is driving them toward that. There may also be some of our own things in-house, and again, these are the things that we can control, that it's also the most diverse generation in our nation's history. And some of the kind of guidelines and rules and restrictions that we put in place of uh, adopting pets and some of the barriers we put in adopting pets don't necessarily favor diverse 
groups of people. And so I sometimes think that our own judgmental policies that we have at our in some of our shelters and our rescue groups might also be driving some of that. And so that's where it's like, again, if we can focus on the things that we can control, the experience that people have when they come in, are they being asked questions that they feel like they're being judged when they those questions get asked? Do they feel like they're being discriminated against because of the neighborhood they live in or because of their race or because of who they decide to share a home with? Like those types of things are things that we can control and could be part of the factor. You know, it's probably multiple things out of all of that, but it could be part of the factor of, of why people are, especially younger folks are tending to go to places that are less likely to be judged. I don't know what you've got planned for research and survey type stuff this year, if there's anything like that on the docket, but man, that would be so interesting to know, wouldn't it? You know, just from that generation specifically, and not only from the adoption perspective, but I think Brent also because they're the next generation of us. They're the next generation of people coming into the animal welfare movement. They're going to be the generation running shelters and rescue groups before too much longer. So if there is an attitude amongst, you know, folks under a certain age, if there's a prevalent attitude that shelter pets are somehow less than, I, I don't know. I just feel like those things would be good to know. And absolutely. And it's not just in the here and now, but it's, you know, they're getting their first pet now for their home, but they're in the over the course of a lifetime going to have five, six, seven pets. Like, you know, if you don't course correct that trend, it's a long, long-term gap that you've created uh, in in the movement if we, we don't set it straight and, and get a better understanding of it. Yeah, and that's what I was saying about the puppies aren't products, adopt, don't shop type messaging. You know, maybe that generation didn't get that education because as you say, it's it's not a lack of caring about social issues, maybe just a lack of awareness around this one issue. Uh, mine's smarter than mine looking at this stuff, thankfully. I think that some of that though with the marketing, if you think about it, if you look back 15 years ago, it was hard. Marketing was hard because you didn't have a lot of access to things. Like we were doing, you know, the pet of the week in the newspaper and you would get a little small column in the newspaper. And then all of a sudden social media made a lot of things really open to us. You know, Facebook was first and we were able to do a lot of great things on Facebook. But like even that algorithm has been dialed back pretty substantially. And unless you're paying for people to see your, your posts, likely a lot of people aren't seeing your posts. It's also the younger generations aren't necessarily on Facebook. Like it's all bogeys like you and I on, on Facebook now, John, you know, the, and I think we have struggled to adapt to some of the things like Snapchat and, and TikTok and some of the other platforms that are more appealing to the younger generations. And there are places that are doing it fairly well. I'm still questioning of whether that's driving adoption traffic for them or just driving likes and clicks and that sort of thing for them. Well, so back to things we can control in 2023 data, not any less important than it's ever been, arguably the opposite, more important than ever. You know, every time you and I talk, I feel like uh, I'm asking you about data collection and how we're doing as a movement in terms of standardizing data, how we're doing in terms of collecting more granular data points, animal level data, because, you know, what we do get now is quite high level. And, and I think we know that you know, a bit more detail could help us be more effective. Yeah. I mean, data is obviously really important. I think it's so weird when you think back, like I started Best Friends in 2016. And at that time, like we didn't know how many animals were dying across the country. We didn't even know how many shelters there were across the country. And there's been so much emphasis and data collection, you know, Shelter Animals Count has launched since then, has done a, a really good job at at building kind of that monthly data over time. 
Best Friends is enhanced upon that with the, the national data set that has even more shelters on, a, on an annual basis and it you know now has about 92 to 93 percent of the animals that come to the shelter systems accounted for. Like that data collection has moved so much in the last six years, but it's going to continue to be something that we're going to need to grow. Like there are still you know 600 shelters that we don't really truly know the number of animals that are moving through. Uh, we certainly don't know it on uh, a monthly basis. And so I think there's going to be a lot of movement coming up to, like, how do we enhance our data collection? So, again, trends can't be stopped unless there's something that disrupts that. And if we are able to disrupt it in more real time as opposed to waiting a year out or waiting on partial data to be able to do that, the more likely we are to cause disruptions that need to be dis- need to be created for us to save lives more quickly as we get closer to 2025. So I, I fully expect a lot more adjustments uh, into the data collection thing in the, the coming year from a variety of different sources. Well, you say a variety of sources. I hear through the grapevine that something new is coming on this front. I don't know what you're ready to say about it or not say, but Brent, you know I love a scoop on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, there's not a lot to talk about yet. It's not launched, but we are working on at Best Friends on it. I new platform that will allow us to gather a greater in-depth amount of data uh, in a process that's more easily done for the shelters and for the rescue groups who are using shelter management software platforms. And so uh, we are in the process of working through that. Keep your eyes and ears tuned soon because there will be more coming out probably in the next few months over that. So yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, and having access to the data will be incredible for us as we continue to try to work towards 2025 uh, and grow the movement. What else for 2023? You know, I think the other thing that I'm seeing for 2023 that is super exciting, you know, I think if you look back at, again, looking back as and, and seeing the trend line is a good way of looking forward. Ten years ago, there were a limited number of places that you could even transport animals to that were no-kill, that the animals were going to be going to places that were safe because everybody was drowning. You know, you, you knew you could send the animals to the Northeast. You could probably go up to Washington and Oregon. That's about it. Over the last, you know, 10 years, more places, like places like Minnesota, have become popular places for animals to get transported up to. A lot of animals are going up to kind of the Great Lakes region in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan area. So we're really growing all of that. And as a part of that, we're just seeing more organizations that are in a situation where they're able to help other organizations. And, you know, you're seeing some of that with our shelter collaborative program. And, you know, you talked about that on the podcast. It's where shelters are helping other shelters uh, to overcome some of their obstacles, some of their barriers to help them increase the life-saving. So it's not just best friends or some national consultant helping. It's shelters helping shelters. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that. You know, we're starting to see more shelters that are individual shelters that are taking on a, a broader role in helping support others, either through receiving animals, through veterinary help and support when they do have veterinary resources that other people don't have. Like Operation Kindness is a, a great one example of that. Like, they have a lot of veterinary resources. They have a brand new veterinary clinic, and they're helping other shelters across the Dallas-Fort Worth area who need that veterinary help. And I think you're going to see that grow in a way that we haven't seen. And I, you know, and I think that continued growth is really exciting and something that we shouldn't lose sight of because I think forever people were just struggling. There's so many shelters that were 
no killed, but were just struggling to keep their own heads above water. And that extra help and support that they're able to provide is super exciting. Uh, I feel like it's like that old snowball that's going down the hill and it just kind of grows as it, it keeps going down and, and catching up snow. Like, I feel like that is what we're seeing with more and more momentum, you know, with these shelters that are doing well and able to help others. Well, since you mentioned the shelter collaborative program, seems like as good a time as any to ask you about what Best Friends is working on for 2023. So I've been helping to manage the content on the Network Partner website. And just from the Meet the Team page that lists out all the folks who support partners in the various ways, like seeing the changes to those teams, I feel like it gives me a little insight into the strategy and the resource allocation. Like, oh, you know, that team is growing. That seems important and something to note. <laughs> so for Best Friends, is 2023 going to see new programs brought forward, new efforts or, uh, you know, changes for partners? So obviously, we're growing programs that are, are newer, that we are showing a lot of success. So the Shelter Collaborative Program is definitely one of those. I think one of the things that's probably been the biggest shift for Best Friends in the past year that looking ahead to 2023 is, you know, I think historically, as we started the 2025 work, we were really focused on large shelters, the ones with large life-saving gaps that needed a lot of help and support because they had a lot of those barriers. Okay, so now we have 53% of the shelters that are no-kill across the country. There are shelters that may have smaller life-saving gaps that have with just a little nudge or a little bit of a program shift or a little bit of help in a certain way. Can we get more of those shelters over that 90% benchmark? And so you're seeing, you're going to see from Best Friends a lot more ability to help and support some of the smaller shelters that are doing relatively well that just have small life-saving gaps to help them get over the over the, the kind of the finish line for them uh, or over that 90% benchmark. And that I'm really excited about because I think we've been somewhat limited in the amount of resources we could put towards some of these smaller gap shelters. And I think being able to grow so that we can, you know, get up to 60% of the shelters to no-kill, 70% of the shelters to no-kill, I think will really create a lot of momentum for the movement in a very positive way, you know, and we've seen that just even in the work that we were doing with the larger shelters back in 2017, it was like 25% of the shelters that were no, we could identify, we could identify as being no kill. Now it's over 50%. Like, I think if we can continue to see that type of growth and that type of momentum, and again, like momentum creates more momentum for it because you have more now shelters that are no kill who are able to help other shelters. And so it just sort of feeds on itself. And so that's something that also I'm really excited about that will be a little bit of a shift in direction. I'm not sure how much people will really recognize it on the outside, unless you're one of those shelters that has been asking for support and not been able to get what you were hoping to get, but it's something we're definitely working on. Rural America is a big topic of conversation the last couple of years. You know, this realization that there are hundreds of shelters representing thousands of communities that are very small. You know, maybe an annual intake to that one shelter annually, 50, 100 pets, 250. But they're also very isolated, right? Resource strapped uh, in ways beyond comprehension for most of us, really cut off in some ways from services and from other people. Is there a good understanding at this point, Brent, do you think, of the rural issue issues and what needs to happen to impact life-saving in those places positively? And what do you think we'll see in terms of rural life-saving in 2023? So I think two things on the, the rural areas. I think one is if you look at the data for it, the rural areas generally are doing fairly well. A lot of them, like the model is a little bit different there because they're so reliant on return to owner or return to home programs because, you know, if you're in a small community, I, I'm from a small town of 8,000 people uh, in rural Missouri, and, like, my hometown shelter has been no-kill for years, and it's because 
70 percent of the animals that come in they're able to find the owners for because they know every person in the community and and where those dogs live and make a few phone calls and it's like okay well yeah that that's benny's dog we'll we'll get him home and so that model's a little bit different in a lot of those places but that said like the challenge in a lot of those rural communities are twofold one you know i was just at a, a couple of shelters in rural texas a couple months ago and you know they have staff of two and they run animal control calls during the day and so if there's two animal control calls that need to be made they just have to hang a sign on the shelter door and leave and go run animal control calls and then if you show up to the shelter to adopt there's nobody there to help and i think that's a real barrier of like how can you even have an adoption program if you don't have the staff to be there for the adopter that comes in and so i think that's a significant barrier and then the other barrier is that of veterinary care you know they obviously don't have an on-staff veterinarian they don't have a lot of money to pay for treatments for even some more basic things that we think would be very treatable in a, a more urban shelter and i think that's where some of these partnerships like the shelter collaborative are becoming really important it's like so who's close like what resource is close that can help provide that care for that dog that breaks with parvo or that came into the shelter with parvo and then, you know if you're talking about a shelter with 200 intake that may be two or three dogs a year. It's not a huge volume of animals, but also ones that they're going to struggle to be able to save without help and support from elsewhere. And that's where I really think the movement coming together as a whole to support each other in the areas where they need help, and everybody needs help in a different different place. And then, you know, that, that support, but then also the data being there so we know who the shelters are that that need the help and support. You know, I think we all have struggled in different places. Even successful shelters uh, have struggled in different areas and gotten help. And so I think we need to destigmatize that so that people feel comfortable of like, I need your help. Here's how you can help me. Can you take this parvo animal? Can you help me with ringworm? Can you help me with whatever my, my challenge happens to be? And that, that help be available for it. And so uh, that's what kind of my hope for some of the data work that uh, is moving forward so that we can have that help is my hope for the shelter collaborative and some of the similar programs so that shelters can help other shelters because that's how rural America is going to get solved. It's not going to be solved by best friends going in and helping solve all the issues. It's going to be help on the local level with nearby shelters helping support that. Well, Brent, you said you'd done some research for this episode, so I want to make sure you have the opportunity to talk about whatever I might not have asked about. No, I mean, I think just saying in closing – for me, like when, when you look at the trend lines, the trend lines aren't great. And in order to change what a trend line looks like, there has to be some type of intervention. And I think for us, it's really important as a movement to like, we're going to have to be that intervention in this. And if we don't change the way we're doing some of the things that we're doing, if we don't be more aggressive in our adoption uh, in the way we're promoting adoptions, if we're not providing better customer service, more inclusive adoption policies in those sorts of things, like we're not going to be able to create the disruption uh, that we need to change the direction that this is this has been trending the last couple of years, which is more dogs coming in than are getting out. And that is something that I hope everybody can hear. And I'm optimistic that that will happen because I feel like a lot of people become very aware of like, this is sort of where our new normal is. I think we were all waiting for like how things were going to stabilize after the pandemic and what was this going to look like? And I think we know that now. And I know, I think we know that if we don't adjust that and we aren't that disruption, then things won't change. And so, you know, if you need help on any of that, like reach out for help and, and provide that support. There are more people than ever that are able to provide support 
for us to be able to try to make those those changes in that progress. Well, I was thinking I would ask you for a word for 2023. You know how people like to do that. It's like not a resolution or an intention. I see a lot of people calling them now, but just a word for the year, you know, like hope. But after hearing all of this, it sounds like the word for 2023 might just be disruption. Yeah, I think disruption and then not feeling like you're a victim. Like control the things that you can control because I, I just... Too often I hear of like, there's so many things that are working against me, the economy and people aren't adopting and there are too many animals coming in and all this stuff. And it's like, we can focus on those things we can't control. You know, I remember in my early days at working with Kansas City Pet Project and we had a consultant come in and we were very much dwelling on like, we had 27 animals in today or we got 30 animals in today. And the consultant was like, you know, you all take in 10,000 animals a year and have been taking 10,000 animals a year in for the better part of the last six years. So you know they're coming. You know that 30 animals a day are coming in. So what you can control is finding outcomes for 30 animals a day. And like that shift of focus for us, so we weren't a victim of the, didn't feel like we were victims of the intake, but that we knew that we could win the day if we found live outcomes for 30 animals that day. Uh, really changed the mindset of our organization and made us feel empowered to make those changes. And I want people to feel super empowered because, you know, you know the animals are coming, work really hard to find the positive outcomes for everything instead of focusing on the things you can't necessarily be in that much control over. All right, so now how about you? What are you planning for in 2023? What are you most worried about? What gives you hope? Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. We'd love to hear about your year ahead, podcast at bestfriends.org. Thank you to Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.